We're going to start with Psalm 42. And when I read it earlier, you may have missed something. And so I want to put the preface to it right up on the screen. Because before, when we're going through the Bible, we're just reading the Psalms. We're not always reading the directions. But look at what it says at the very top of this Psalm. It says, for the choir director, a Psalm of the descendants of Korah. That's a picture. That's a picture of something. We can miss that when we're reading through. You may have heard this psalm before. You may never have heard it before. Either way, it's important for us to know what that means because it's going to allow us to understand the rest of the psalm. It is a really essential but a deep-cut story from the Bible, and you may gloss over it and just say, oh, I know this one. It's the, the praise song from the 70s, as the deer pants for the water, right? And, and we miss this beginning. A psalm for the descendants of Korah. Life was bad for them. Life was really bad for them. I want you to think of this psalm as being written by the descendants of Benedict Arnold. Who's Benedict Arnold? In the Revolutionary War, you had this great general, Benedict Arnold, who was great until he wasn't. What did he do? He betrayed the people. And now, when I was growing up, at least, I remember Schoolhouse Rock, and I remember just all the different ways of talking in second, third grade. And to be a Benedict Arnold is to be a traitor. Now, you can say, I'm confused. This is a psalm of descendants of Korah. Why would, why would Benedict Arnold's descendants get to write a psalm? That's a great question. Remember how I said there's a lot there? There's a lot here. The the, psalm, the descendants of Korah are not winners, they are losers. They are people who something really bad has happened. If you go in the book of Numbers, I believe it's, it's, I've, it's number 16 or 18, you can fact check me real quick, but it's, it's early on in Numbers, you have a series of rebellions against the people, and one, against Moses and Aaron, and now you have this group of people, Korah, he leads this group, and they're going to rebel against Moses, and they're going to have the showdown. And he's basically going to say, like, Moses, uh, this isn't working for us. And what happens is rather than Korah prevailing, you see this whole thing where there's fire, and the earth literally swallows up Korah and the people with him, and fire consumes a lot of the rebels, and it goes spectacularly bad. And it's that is the ancestor of the person who wrote this psalm. So you can totally miss that. And so as we go through this really famous psalm, you might totally miss that. But you have a group of people who are asking this question. How did I get here? How did I get here? And we'll throw this up on the screen. They're, they're wondering this. They're saying, how did I get here? Have you ever felt this? Have you ever gotten to a situation and been like, life was good. I felt good about things. My job was great. Things were going great in my marriage. My, my kids were cute little kids. Like there was a poopy diaper every once in a while, but we were playing soccer. How did I get here? I, I, I guess my boss like didn't love me, but, but how did I, I get here? Have you ever felt this? Because this is something that the descendants of Korah, their circumstances have led them to this point where they're saying, how did I get here and what comes next for me? My question for us is, when we get to a place where I say, how did I get here? Am I going to become optimistic? Is that going to 
solve things? Am I going to always look on the bright side of life? Is that going to actually solve? The question someone asked me recently, they said, hey, uh, is optimism a biblical concept? So it's, it's like a half-truth because it's not. Optimism is not a biblical concept. We know that God works good in all things for those who love him. However, we also know that simply just being like, whippee, uh, how did I get here? I don't know, but it probably, maybe, will possibly get better. I'm not sure how. That's not a biblical concept. Our question is, do we become optimistic at the times we wonder, how did I get here, or do we put hope in God? Now, we know the answer is hope in God, and we'll talk about that because we have this problem. Optimism says the following. My circumstances will change. What if they don't? What if I get into a car accident and I can't use my left leg and I say circumstances will change, I can use it again. Okay, what if I can't use my left leg again? Optimism kind of runs out. Now my circumstances are defining my life. What if we think of it as a job? I get a bad review at work. I don't feel good about my bad review at work, but I say, hey, my circumstances will change. I'll work a little harder. I'll do a little more. I'll put in a little more time. Maybe I'll shut my mouth around my boss a little bit more, and my circumstances will change. Well, what if six months later, my boss fires me? My circumstances have changed, right? They've now gotten worse. So optimism isn't the solution, we have a theological foundation, and it is a solution. It's called biblical hope. Biblical hope. Sometimes we give you a word that you write down and you're like, I don't know what theodicy is. That's a wild word. Everybody uses the word hope all the time. This is a word we use constantly. I even have, a, have an in-law named Hope. It's a very common name. Now, here's my thing. Just like there's various ways we use the word love, there's various ways we use the word hope. A lot of the ways we use hope is not biblical, it's optimism. Let me give an example. Today I'm going to be driving to the Poconos. I hope that we don't get into a lot of traffic. That's just based on circumstances. We'll do another one. They're going to provide us free breakfast in the morning. I hope that they're going to have bacon. <laughs> do you see that these are just circumstantial optimism? By the way, you turkey bacon people, I don't get you. If you're a turkey bacon person, I don't get you. And if you're one of those like plant-based meat people, I really don't get you. The turkey bacon people don't get you. Now, here's my thing. I asked our resident theologian, Reverend Cushing, and here's what he said. He said, David, I'd love to, to give you a theological definition of biblical hope, so let's write this down. Here's what he said. He said, biblical hope is an assurance of something God has for us in the future without knowing how it will happen. That sounds pretty good. Now, hope is a recurring theme in the Psalms. It actually comes up, there's 150 Psalms. It comes up 40 times. Not 14, 40. Four, zero. I never know which way to do it, by the way. I, I always get unclear. Do I do it like this? This is, this is 04, right? 4T, there we go. That many. So it, think of that. It doesn't come up four times. If hope came up four times, it'd be important, right? Comes up 40 times. Super, 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 super important in the Psalms. As you're reading, we want to say, okay, hope. Now, the Bible is not originally written in English. 
I hope this isn't news for anyone, but if it is, that's okay. You're going to learn something. Bible's originally written in a couple languages, primarily Hebrew for the Old Testament with something called Aramaic. We won't go there right now. And then Greek for the New Testament. Hope in the Psalms is two different words, but they both have the same meaning. They don't just mean to hope. They mean to wait. I was considering buying a truck this week. Didn't happen. But I thought in advance of, you know, if I do get registered to my name, where am I going to have to wait? Everyone's favorite or least favorite place in the world to wait, the RMV. That's a little closer, by the way. Waiting in the RMV to get a truck registered to you is a little closer to the biblical definition of hope than hoping that we're going to have bacon tomorrow at Kalahari, just so you know. Now, good, you're with me. Here's the thing. We see over and over in the Psalms that hoping in God is the key to not just like having crazy thoughts and overthinking and just being so panicked. Because remember, we read that Psalm and we'll go through it. But did you see all the mess that this guy is dealing with? Remember, we have this guy who's basically the, a descendant of Benedict Arnold. He's a descendant of Korah. The guy who said, hey, Moses, uh, you don't know best. Hey, God, you don't know best and he was swallowed up by the earth. And now he has a descendant, and that descendant is like, yeah, there's really complicated things. I remember in my family uh, what it was like to lead the procession. We don't lead the procession anymore because this guy Korah like, messed it all up for us and got swallowed in the earth. But uh, yeah, we remember as a family the past, and that would be cool, but it's not there. Because what we see with biblical hope, it's not about our circumstances, it's about the character of God. Optimism is this. I consider how my circumstances could lead to an outcome I'd feel better about. Let's notice a couple key words. Circumstances, which change. Could, may or may not happen, and feel. What happens when I get stuck with all my feelings? Good stuff? Not good stuff. Anybody ever feel your way to happiness? No, we, we feel our way to, to sadness and misery and anxiety and sitting and like reflecting on what we did as a 17-year-old that was stupid and how if that hadn't happened, maybe our life would be better, but it, we did. So, right? so the, the feelings aren't helpful. Dwelling in the feelings, you won't ever walk up to a, to a, to a pastor or to, to someone with biblical wisdom in any way and they won't be like, hey, I think you need to just take a little more time to just dwell in your, in your negative feelings. No one's going to tell you that. So optimism can quickly lead us to those negative feelings, by the way. You, you think, oh, I want to be optimistic. I want to look on the bright side. Well, yeah, until I don't, right? So yeah, things may look better until they're not, and now I'm stuck in those swirling thoughts. So there's something better, and that's this idea of biblical hope. God's character leads me to wait on his future. But sometimes we show you two themes like this. We say, here's a bad one and here's a good one, and it's hard to figure out which is which. And so people say, hey, could you make it real for me? Because, like, you're doing this fuzzy, like, church thing, and, like, you read a psalm, and now you're, like, using fuzzy church language, and that's confusing. Can you make it real for me, please? So let's try. We'll give you three scenarios. Let's look at what optimism is versus biblical hope. Scenario number one. I get laid off. Okay, optimism says, oh, this is hard, but maybe next time my job will be better. 
maybe next time I'll make a little more money or maybe my boss will like me or maybe I'll like my next boss better. Not the solution. Biblical hope, yeah, I've lost my job. My purpose, God created me because remember, biblical hope is about the character of God. God created me to worship him and to serve others and to make a difference. If I do that through a job, okay, But if I don't, if I don't do it through that job or any job, I'm going to bloom where I'm planted, and wherever God puts me, the Lord provides, I don't have to provide for myself. That's biblical hope. And just letting go and saying, hey, it's not that maybe I'll have a better job with more money, it's that I get that my life is not defined by my job, my life is defined by the fact that God loves me and I can serve him. So there's scenario one, here's another one. My coworkers don't seem to like me. Anybody ever feel with this? So optimism says, hey, if I bring them muffins on Friday, maybe they won't hate me as much. But what if they just like scoff at my muffins? Now I just like am out 17, no, inflation, probably for a dozen muffins. I don't know, $42. I'm out $42. Oh, it's, it's absurd, my friends. So I'm out $42 for muffins, and they didn't even like my muffins. They just sat there. Biblical hope is better. What's biblical hope? I'm not here to please my coworkers. I need to be kind to them. I need to be kind to them. <laughs> Thank you. I hear some amens. I need to be kind to them, but I'm not here to please my coworkers. Who am I here to please? God. Then who am I here to serve? I'm here to serve God, then my spouse, then my family, then everything else. I am not here. I was not created by God to give muffins to my coworkers. Here's my favorite of them. I came up with the, the ones I like this one the best. My marriage feels too much like real life and not enough like a romance movie. Anybody ever have this if you're married? If you're not, bear with me. You can imagine it now. Optimism. What does optimism say? Optimism says, well, you know, if... If she makes some changes and I make some changes, you know, uh, maybe it could be a little more like, now you have to pick your generation. My generation's romance movie that we think of is The Notebook. If you're a millennial, you probably maybe have The Notebook or Beaches or you put whatever romance movie you want there. Dirty Dancing, you can put anyone you want. But the reality is, is in my life, I'm not Patrick Swayze and my life is not going to be like a romance movie. Biblical Hope says, hey, Look back at the character of God. What did, what did God create marriage for? Did God create marriage so that my marriage would feel like a romance movie? No. What did God create marriage for? Let's just talk about it very briefly. God created marriage because people do not need to be alone. So man and woman come together in a loving relationship with commitment, not like, hey, today I feel pretty good about this, but tomorrow, who knows, but actual commitment, like, till death do us part. We had a marriage yesterday. Okay, and then from that opportunity, you often have the chance to do a few of the following. Maybe you get to have children. Maybe you get to have nieces or nephew. You get to make a difference in young people's lives. You get to be part of a community. You get to love and serve God together, and you get to grow old together or as old as you're able until God takes you away. Now, here is the thing. I love listening to the pastor, Matt Chandler. He's a a pastor in Texas. And he was recently telling about this couple. When he first, he's been at his church 20 years. He was at his church about 20 years ago, and he was getting hired. And there was this lovely guy 
really, really sweet guy. His name was Jim Beckett. And Jim Beckett was essentially the head of their elder board. You saw um, my friend Bob up here earlier as we prayed for the Evans family. I had the elders stand. We, we love our elders. They stood up here um, last week. And also at the end of services, they come up for prayer time. They pray for our congregation. They love our congregation. They, they really help lead and guide our congregation. I love being able to work with our elders. We do ministry in tandem. Now, in their church, in their church, this guy, and his name was Jim Beckett, he basically had the hand in selecting Matt as pastor. And now for the next 20 years, he was in his 70s. Now he's in his 90s. And him and his wife, Jane, had been married for not 50, not 60, not 70, but 75 years. I've never even heard of someone married that long. But here was his point. It wasn't that their marriage was like a romance movie. It was they had ups and downs. There were good times. There were bad times. There were the highs and there were the lows. But God got them through it because they understood that their point as a married couple was not to feel like a romance movie and not to have just this amazing feeling and circumstances, but to love and serve God, to love and serve each other, and to follow Jesus for 75 years. And that's what marriage is. It's not about feeling like a romance movie. That was a little rant, but I wanted to get that in there. Now, this takes us to our big idea. God's character means I will wait for his future. I love making us say this. So we're going to repeat this because this is so important. Today, we're not looking at Psalm 42 and saying, I'm going to be optimistic. What are we doing? We're saying God's character, not my circumstances. God's character means I, everybody point to yourself, I will wait for whose future? My, my future? No, God's future, his future. Okay, we're going to read this together, and then we're going to get started with Psalm 42. By the way, this is your 30-second warning to get your Bible out, because we're going to go line by line. Okay, we're going to read it together in three, two, one. God's character means I will wait for his future. So we're going to see this a couple ways. Number one, all of us thirst for God. Number two, our feelings lie to us. And number three, God is greater than the messiness of life, including all of my mistakes. Let's start with all of us thirst for God. I love this picture. Nice run. Makes me realize that I need to use the month of July. I'm taking a little time off. I need to get on my Peloton, do some running, and be like this person here. Thank you for being an example for me in this picture. Now, we start in this psalm. Who did, wrote it? A descendant of Korah. Who is Korah like? Benedict Arnold. Yet now this person has an opportunity to write a poem realizing that hope is in God, God's character, not circumstances. Hope is not in circumstances changing. That is optimism. Hope is in God because of his character. And we see that now this psalm is going to show there's messy feelings, there's thirst for God, but in the center of it all, there's hope for God waiting. Let's start in verse 1. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Now, really interesting. We may have missed it if you didn't read the For the Choir Director directions where it says a psalm from the descendants of Korah. This group of people, they could say, hey, I thirst for my reputation back. You may have had a moment in your life where you lost some reputation, 
This family had status, power, reputation. They had position. They had everything you could think of. They were the, they were the most prominent family of the best town around. And now it was all gone. And what does it say? It doesn't say, as the dear pants for water, I thirst for my reputation, things to be solved, everything to be fixed. It says, I thirst for God. So they realized their thirst was for God. And I want us to watch that because when we get thirsty, have you ever gotten real thirsty? It's not as hot of a day as it was yesterday. When I preached this yesterday, it was a little brutal in here. It made me really want to pray for air conditioning. But uh, let's, let's uh, by the way, pray for air conditioning at some point. Uh, let's just, <laughs> dear Jesus, uh, please send us air conditioning in thy name. Amen. Um, I joke, but it was hot. And so I was getting thirsty. And so I said, hey, it's easy for us to imagine the feeling of thirsty because we all have it right now. Maybe we don't as much. The fans are nice. Not as nice as air conditioning, but nice. Now, I joke. I'm using it to get you thinking about this idea of thirsty. I was in middle school, seventh grade. Fun stories happened in seventh grade. Think back to when you were a seventh grader. I was like 12. My family lived in a town called Whitensville. There's a weird number of Whitensville connections, by the way, in this church. We were just in a funeral, and the guy lived in Whitensville. And I was like, what is happening? There's like nine Whitensville connections. But another story for another day. Now, we were in Whitensville. There was a street called Hill Street. This was the year 2002. So David was like 12, 13 and did not have a cell phone. Important detail. Please remember this. And my parents came up to me and said, hey, you're very responsible. We're going out for the day. You just do what you want. Be back by be back by the time we get home around 5 or 6 o'clock. And I thought, great. I'm going to get on my bicycle, and I'm going to ride up Hill Street, and I'm going to explore the town. So I did. I went up on my bicycle. a very hot day, 88 degrees, maybe 89. I don't know. Let's make it 90 degrees. It was 90 degrees. It was very hot. But young that I was, I thought, hey, I'll do all my hydration in advance, and I'll, I'll drink when I get home. I'll be fine, right? What could go wrong? Now, I go up Hill Street, and I'm feeling great. And I, I go up about a mile, and I say, hey, I can go all the way up to Fapamas. That's three miles away. So I go all the way to Fapamas. Then I'm feeling amazing. I feel like I can own the world, and everything's great. So I say, I'm going to go all the way up to Grafton. And I get about five miles away from my house, and what do you think happens on my 90-degree day? What happens to the tire of my bicycle? Uh-oh. I don't have a cell phone. I don't know anyone in Grafton. What's Grafton? What's in Grafton? I didn't know at the time. I know more people in Grafton now than I did then. And so now for the next, I don't know how long, it felt like forever, there's David, no longer victorious, but carrying his bicycle five and a half miles up Hill Street, because Hill Street was Hill Street, so it wasn't just like there was a hill on the way up, but there was hills on both ways, up Hill Street. And by the time I got home, how thirsty do you think I was? Incredibly thirsty. And do you know what I drank right off the bat? I, I, I thirsted, and do you know what the first thing I drank was? I don't remember. <laughs> I was in seventh grade, and I, that was a really long time ago. That was like 20-some years. But I would have drank anything. My thirst was for water, and if you would have given me stale Diet Coke with vinegar in it, I probably would have chugged it down. I want you to think of that because that's our innate need for God. We have a thirst for God, and it can get misguided. Korah's descendant writes and doesn't have a misguided thirst. Korah's descendant could have said, hey, I want it, I want it all back. I want my past. I want my reputation. I want my family status. 
Could have thirsted for that, didn't do that. Knew that hope is rooted in God's character, not in circumstances. Therefore, thirsted for God. What about for us? There's times where we feel isolated, lonely. What is it? It's hungry, angry, lonely, tired. You ever have those halt moments? Now, in those moments, right now we thirst for God, and especially in those moments. Can we try to quench our thirst with the wrong thing? Here's my question for you. What would change if I began recognizing that my thirst is for God, that the other things aren't going to satisfy? We see that with Korah's family. You see this, this family with a spectacular, how did I get here situation. They still say, well, hope is in God and his character, not in my circumstances. Let's keep going. We're going to be in verse 3 now. So we started with all of us thirst for God. What about this? Our feelings, they lie to us, my friends. We'll look in verse 3. Day and night, I have only tears for food, while my enemies constantly, continually taunt me, saying, where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. Uh, I walked among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of a great celebration. So Korah's descendant is honest about the feelings here. Doesn't let the feelings define the story, but is honest about the feelings. What are some of the things Korah's descendant misses? Let's go real slow. Listens to these taunts. Have you ever been taunted? Maybe you're sitting and doing the pacer test in gym class. We'll go back to, to school, and you're not doing very well. And they're like, would you just hurry up? Would you just hurry up? Like, we need our turn, a relay race, whatever. Taunting. How does that feel when I get taunted? Someone says, hey, you have faith. Where is this God of yours? Uh, you know, I'm doing pretty well, and, and you're, you're in a pretty pathetic situation. Where is this God of yours? What do I feel when my friend asks me that? What do I feel when the person that I want them to see that like Jesus is in my heart and so my life is better, but then I forget that that means hopes in God's character, not in optimism in my circumstances. So now my circumstances are like, Ugh, and they're looking at that and they're like, see, where did that guy Jesus get you? Not very far. And now my feelings lie to me and I'm like, it's not that I say, oh, you're right. I'm just, I panic and I have these feelings in my mind and in my heart. I think of a time, here's another middle school. We can all have these times when our feelings lie to us. Maybe you have it at work. Maybe you have this really distinct time in your life at work where actually things were going well, where you were there because God put you there and you had the opportunity to do something. Maybe you had a bad review. Maybe you just had a bad day. Maybe you got a troubling phone call. doesn't matter. And your feelings began to lie to you and began to say, hey, uh... Your optimism should be in the circumstances or you should feel bad about it. For me, it was when I moved, I told you a time in seventh grade, let's go to sixth grade. It was the year 2000. And sixth grade, we just moved to Whitensville, that same town. And I was really excited because I went to a Christian school that was going to have wonderful people and wonderful mentors. Please don't miss that part. God had put me in a Christian school with kind, caring Christians who were literally going to pray for me every day. We sometimes wonder about our kids in schools, but I was put in a school where we knew we had Christians praying for me. So important detail, put that to the side for a moment. Now, I'm there, 
And we have these things called exploratories. They're kind of like electives, but they're the middle school version. They're 28 minutes long. I didn't go to PCIS. By the time we got to Plymouth, I was in high school. We had exploratories, and I was so excited because there was this exploratory where you got to make comic books, and you got to make your own characters. And how excited do you think I was going to be to be in it? So excited. Until I didn't get put in it, and instead I put it, got put in an improv elective as an exploratory as the only sixth grader with a group of eighth graders. And my feelings began to lie to me, my friends. Now, if you know anything about me, you know that, like, when I preach, I don't stand at a pulpit. I'm all animated and excited. When you hear the Through the Bible, Through a Year podcast, you hear silly voices to voice the characters. I've enjoyed being in plays and drama and things. So actually, if I would have not let my feelings lie to me at the time, that was the beginning of a love for drama, for theater, for improv, etc. But at the time, my feelings were lying to me. And I just felt awful, right? I was sitting with a group of eighth graders and just feeling humiliated. Like, they're all funny and I'm awkward and new to the town and I don't want to speak. So I'm going to do like this. And when it's time for the improv game, uh, I'll just get through it really quickly and let them do their thing because my feelings were lying to me. What did we play? We played this game. Actually, remember it? That's how much of a missed opportunity it was that I let my feelings lie to me because these are sweet Christian kids who probably would have been willing to play along instead of me sitting pathetic in the corner. We played a game called Fortunately Unfortunately. What is this? Let me show you. I don't usually do this kind of audience participation, and I'm a little scared, but I need someone to give me a place I could go. Where am I going today? And it can't be Kalahari for the thing. Where am I going? Give me the amusement park, though. Where, where is Lincoln Park? I don't... In Fall River. I need a little more details. Give me a Disney World. Did I hear Disney World? We'll do Disney World. Okay. So I'm going to Disney World is the premise. I told you it's a true improv game. Unfortunately, we didn't buy tickets for the plane, so we couldn't get on it. Fortunately, there's a Six Flags down the road. Unfortunately, I forgot to get my inspection and so it'll be illegal for me to drive. Fortunately, I have friends in the church, and I'm going to call up Rennie, and she and I are going to go to Six Flags together. Unfortunately, Rennie doesn't like Six Flags. <laughs> fortunately, right? You get the point? Okay, so there's fortunately, unfortunately. Now, again, that could have been, and it ultimately was, a positive experience, but at the time, it really had me feeling bummed out and really upset because my feelings... Have you had moments in your life where things have been good, where you've had these new opportunities? God is faithful because of his character, and we see that in your life, but you're caught up in your feelings. Here's my question for you. What would change? What would change? And we'll put this slide up. If I started recognizing that my feelings lie in my marriage, do I ever have issues in my marriage because my feelings lie to me? In my workplace. We've picked on those. Let's, let's try something else. In the club that I'm involved in. In my friend group. With my sense of right and wrong. What would change if I started recognizing that my feelings lie? Because optimism in circumstances is not biblical hope. Biblical hope is rooted in the character of God. And let's look at the last part of our text 
Therefore, God is greater than the messiness of life. And I'm not going to reread these verses. Instead, I want to just highlight what's in them. Because what we see with this descendant of Korah, he doesn't have a status coming back. Had you heard of Korah before you came to church today? A lot of us hadn't. He's not like some household name in the Bible. This isn't Moses. This isn't Elijah. This isn't like one of the characters we named our kids after. I don't know any Korahs. Anybody know a Korah spelled with a K? I don't. So it's not like this person is some big famous person who had all this status. Instead, he's kind of like the Benedict Arnold of the Bible. And now the descendant is dealing with a messy life. But watch what happens. I'm just going to highlight the various parts of this. So we see early on, we start in verse 5. You'll see that Korah's descendant first deals with and sadness. Can we deal with those? Feel those. And it's mixed with hope in God. I will hope in God. But then Korah's descendant starts to deal with this raging sea and God's might. So like this stuff outside of my control of my circumstances and also God's character, that God is mighty and greater than all of my problems. So do we start to see it's messy? Okay, let's keep going. God is unfailing love in the day and reassurance each night. Korah's descendant is seeing these things. God has given Korah's descendant a gift of life. But also, the writer has these feelings of being forgotten, has these feelings of wandering in grief. Have you ever felt like you were wandering in grief? Like, how did I get here? It's what we began our message with. How did I get here? I'm wandering in grief. This isn't what I wanted. This isn't... I, I, when, I, when, I was, when I was nine years old and people said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know exactly what, but not exactly where I am in this moment right here. But my feelings lie to me and God is greater than the messiness of life. Broken bones... Damaging words, getting scoffed at. My question is, in the messiness of your life, what would start to change? What would start to change if I started believing God is greater than my circumstances? What would be different? Because here's our big idea. God's character is what leads me to wait on his future. It's not circumstances, it's God's character. And that leads me to two discussions I've had this week. Number one, on Wednesday, together with members of one of the small groups that I have the opportunity to study with, we have faith groups at our church, so I'm using the phrase small group just in case you don't know what it is. We call our small groups faith groups. Some of them meet in the church. Some of them meet in homes. Those are called home groups. I had the opportunity to sit with the members of one of my home groups, this one in South Plymouth in the Pine Hills. And we were just talking about various things of faith. And one of the things is that we realized, how clearly are we articulating God's hope? How, how clearly are we being honest about this? Are we really people, helping people understand hope? And I, I wrestled with this with them, and we talked about it. Then the following day, I got together with an elder in our church, and I was wrestling with the same conversation about this. Are we really helping people understand God's hope? Because there's a couple key reasons why. Number one, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and we'll wait on, on these. The gospel, the good news of Jesus for all the world, means that I can accept it, and then when I accept it, 
I need to understand it and live it and experience it so I can share it with others. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to take an opportunity to be very clear about what biblical hope looks like. There's all this other stuff that, that is extra and wonderful and great, but I want to be really clear about when we use the phrase, the gospel, at this church, what do we mean? Because sometimes people say, the gospel, the gospel. Have you ever heard this? The gospel, the gospel, but they're not clear. I want to articulate in five points. Number one, perfect God created a perfect world. You see this in Genesis 1. Super clear, everything's ordered, everything's great, everything's beautiful. You see Adam has this chance to have dominion over the animals. He's naming the animals. Then what happens? Sin enters the world. Sin is real. Sin is not a figment of our imagination. Sin is real. Sin entered the world. What is sin? Sin is missing the mark. God has a design and a plan for our world, for our lives. Sin entered the world. Now we are all, because we are descendants of Adam and Eve, we are now all sinners under God's judgment. What, David? You said this was good news. Okay, keep bearing with me. Number three. No amount of human works or optimism can solve the sin problem. We have a couple ways we try to have false gospels. False good news is the real good news is through Jesus, and you'll see this, but the false gospels, there's a couple. Let's do two real quick. Number one, I can pay off the debt myself. I can work hard. I can be kind. I can serve my neighbor. Then my sin will go away, or there'll be this scale, and it'll balance out. Wrong, wrong go, sorry. What's the problem? Even one sin is too many. That's just the reality. Okay, but what about optimism? What if I just say I'm going to look on the right side of life and, eh, it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. I'm just going to be optimistic. Nope, doesn't solve the sin problem. Neither of those works. Instead, item four. Perfect God does love us, sent Jesus to live a sinless life, to die in our place, and to rise again actually lived, actually lived a sinless life, actually died in our place, actually, and actually rose. These are what we believe, and these are core to our understanding of hope. Therefore, what is our now response? Here's our response. And this is the gospel message. We simply must believe in order to be made right with God both now and eternally. The reason I go through this is two reasons. Number one, you may have not, maybe you've been around church your whole life. Maybe you have. And maybe you're like, yeah, I like church culture. There's nice people there. And maybe you say, yeah, I like the routine of going on Sunday and having all this stuff. But that's not the gospel. Church culture and the routine are not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. The gospel is very simple. We'll go through the five real, real quick. Perfect God created a perfect world. Sin entered the world. We're all sinners under God's judgment. No amount of human good works or optimism solves the sin problem. Perfect God loves us. Sent Jesus to live a sinless life. Die in our place. Rise again. We simply must believe in order to be made right with God now, both now and eternally. And so we have an opportunity at the end. We always invite our elders forward. So we've featured them a couple times today. We love you, our elders. We're going to bring our elders forward. They're going to be down here at the front. We're going to do two things. Number one, am I trusting in Jesus as my Savior today? We'll put this, this, this prayer slide on the screen. It's our final slide. Number one, am I trusting in Jesus? And our elders are going to make their way forward now. 
And the band will come up too. Am I trusting in Jesus as my Savior today? That's question number one. If I'm not, and I've heard the gospel, and I'm, and I'm saying, hey, it's not about church culture. It's, it's, not about, it's not about good vibes. It's about that I am under judgment because of my sin. But God simply says, hey, you don't have to say that way. Like, that's not permanent. All you need to do is freely believe, repent from yourself, have faith, and now there's responses like baptism and everything else, but those aren't the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. So number one, as our elders are standing here forward, number one, am I trusting in Jesus as my Savior? And then if you have, if you've given your life to Jesus, then I have a second question for you, and our band will begin playing. Am I too caught up in the circumstances of my life? Am I so fixated on all my feelings and on all the ways that everything gets so caught up in my head, even though my feelings lie to me? Am I getting caught up in thinking, wow, optimism is going to do the trick. Wow, uh, you know, if I just kind of feel a little bit better about it, it'll be better. If I'm in either of those situations today, we're going to have everybody stand. We're going to pray together. And I'm going to ask you to do one of two things. Number one, if the Lord is, is really stirring you today in your heart and you're saying, wow, David, I am a sinner but I just want to receive that. We're going to have you come pray with an elder and we're going to have you receive salvation. But number two, if I'm just saying today, circumstances of life are just getting too much and they're dominating everything. I invite you, we'll stand and we'll pray and we'll have an opportunity just to be prayed over and just say, Lord, what would you have me do next? How can I really live out my hope in you? So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your son, Jesus, for the true meaning of hope. Lord, I pray that today, if you're, as you're working in our hearts, that those of us who are ready to follow you, whether for the first time or to really say, I'm trusting too much in optimism, Lord, I ask that you allow us to take that next step. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.